The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So, good morning, everyone. Mm, hope you had a wonderful sit or sits. I know some of you got here very early this morning. Uh, so just briefly, uh, because they didn't have a bio for me, um, it's been a while since I've been here, and it's always nice to come back. Um, I led the middle, uh, young to middle Dharma school here for a couple of years, and so, but it's been a while since I did that. Uh, so my name is Misha, and I am in the Zen lineage of uh, Suzuki Roshi and San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, my teacher uh, teaches at Kanando in Mountain View, Les K, and I have my own Sangha, Zen Heart Sangha, which meets mostly in Menlo Park and Woodside, but I also have students in Sacramento and even as far away as New York. So, um, and Gil and I have known each other for a long time because, of course, he has the dual lineage between uh, the Vipassana training and the Zen training. And in fact, there's a big Mahapajapati show coming up soon for which I've been invited to be the narrator, so I'll be back here again very soon. And as you can see, I have a lot of show and tell with me today. I have a calligraphy that I'm going to share with you, and I also have a tea bowl that contains the greatest teaching of my life. Uh, Because the other thing that I have done as training, I've, I've been practicing since 1984, and I've been a monk since 1988. Uh, But at the same time that I was practicing uh, in Zen training, I also had the great good fortune to start training in Japanese tea ceremony. And my teacher was um, an older American woman who had studied with a Japanese teacher who was not a full-on tea ceremony teacher himself, but actually was a painter. Uh, it just, of course, if you come from Japan, often your training as a young person, y- you have to do tea ceremony as sort of part of your life. And my teacher, Peg, started studying with him at the age of 45 and continued for the next 45 years to practice tea. And I did not meet her until she was already 78 and she was still kneeling on the ground doing tea at that age, if this gives you any hope at all. (laughs) So, uh, recently, uh, my group had a retreat, and uh, my senior student and I decided to share the teaching seat, and I asked her what she wanted to talk about, and she said, well, I'd really like to talk about zazen, meditation. I said, oh, well, what a surprise. (laughs) Great topic, okay. I don't have to prepare for that. I can just talk off the top of my head. And the wonderful thing about retreat, as I'm sure you're aware, is that if there is something on your mind, (laughs) whether you want it to or not, it keeps coming up. But the good news is that if you are getting ready to give a talk, what comes up is little things here and there. It's like, oh, I should mention that. Okay, back to the breath. Oh, I should mention that. Oh, back to the breath. (laughs) So that by the time you have to actually give the talk, all these things have sort of coalesced and it comes out. 
So I, I wanted to start the evening out with a very famous pronouncement that was made by uh, a Zen teacher over 40 years ago in a talk. Uh, his name was Sawaki Kodo Roshi. And what he said was, Zazen, meditation, is good for nothing. I'm sure everyone that was listening was horrified by this. It's like, wait a minute, what am I doing here then? Why have I just sat through two days of agony, my knees are killing me, my shoulders are going, and you're telling me it's good for nothing? So let's be specific about what we mean and what he meant, or what at least I think he meant. If you think that you're coming to meditation practice to end your suffering, you are in for disappointment. It's a mistake. You cannot end suffering. At least not for any length of time. Suffering (laughs) is... A a later student of Sawaki Koto Roshi was Katagiri Roshi who uh, lived and taught in Chicago. And he basically said, it's a holy truth. It's like gravity. It exists, and you can't do anything about it other than your response to it. There isn't anybody in this room right now who isn't either suffering from some difficult thing, him or herself, or knows someone close to them who is. Right now, the altar in our zendo, we have a... We have a death side of people who have recently died, and then we have the well-being side. The well-being side has so many names, I'm running out of room. And these are people, I mean, there are serious things. Cancer, suicide, uh, the death of an old family companion dog. Serious, awful, sad things. This is going to happen. You cannot get through this life with a body and a mind that is not going to have some suffering. This is why it's the first noble truth. You know, the Buddha was on to something, folks. <laughs> it's A number one. He didn't give you the eightfold path first of ways to be a better human being. Because the eightfold path actually refers directly to truth number one. The eightfold path are ways to lessen and maybe even once in a while for a moment end suffering. But you cannot stop suffering from existence. It is part of being human, or a sentient being even. Because even animals and trees, plants, they suffer. You, <laughs> one Zen teacher used to say, the only difference between the cow and the cabbage is that the cow screams louder. <laughs> you know, everything you eat had to be yanked out of the ground or off a tree. And in that moment, you cut its lifeline. Everything you eat is dead. That's kind of a strange thing to think about. So, Zazen is not a self-improvement program. You are not here necessarily to become better people, kinder, more compassionate, wiser. You are who you are, and that is actually what you are here for. You are to become completely you. And that turns out to not be such an easy thing. Because there's always somebody telling you that you are not enough as you. You know, the, the American uh, media system, that's the whole message. If you do not buy my car, 
If you do not eat this food, if you do not try this new hair product, for those of us who have very little, <laughs> you, you will suffer terrible, you know, embarrassment and cruelty. And, but if you get it, you're going to find true enlightenment. How many times have you gone and bought something that you really wanted and you're really excited about it and then later it's like, oh, you're a little let down. It's not quite exactly, it doesn't change your life the way you thought it would. We cannot transcend human suffering and suddenly become these blissful human beings. I think that we have some notion when we begin practice that we're the ones who are going to have this big special enlightenment moment and it's going to change us forever and everyone's going to go, oh, you look wonderful, oh, what happened to you? And, and there's that great story of the Buddha walking along the river and the monk comes from the other direction of some other sect and he says, are you a saint? And the Buddha says, no. He says, well, are, are you an arhat? No. Well, what are you? I'm awake. And we're all hoping that someone is going to notice that we are the ones who are awake. <laughs> but here's the truth, as you know it for yourselves. The three poisons, okay, so noble truth number two, desire, aversion, delusion, they're arising endlessly. Probably when I said meditation was good for nothing, aversion came right up for a lot of you and saying, what, what is she talking about? I don't like that idea. Right? But then there's others of you who are saying, oh, that's good because, you know, I still have all these problems and that makes me feel better, so <laughs> I'm going in the other direction. Part of this first noble truth, this truth of suffering, is just understanding suffering is always going to be with us Stop fighting that. There are these three hungers that we talk about in Buddhism. And they are part of being human. The first is we would like to hold on to our sensual pleasures. We all like, I mean, everybody needs to eat. But we have become a society of foodies. (laughs) it isn't just that we like to eat it's like we like to eat something different every night and it has to be a different cuisine and when we go out you know it's Asian fusion California whatever okay and so and we we like to go and have the spa treatment and we like to have our hot tub and all of these things they, they make us feel good we like our sensual pleasures of course we do Makes the body feel good. Makes the mind, you know, it strokes the mind. And then, the second hunger is, we are craving being. There isn't anyone in this room, mostly, I hope, (laughs) who doesn't want to be alive. Because this is part of your reptilian brain. You know, you got these three brains, all one on top of another, which becomes your, your humanness. And the reptilian brain says, I want to stay alive no matter what. It's the fight or flight one. And so that's the craving being. But it is true that there might be one or two of you here, or sometime in your life you may have felt this way, that has the opposite problem, the craving of non-being. And that is the wish to be free of our current pain 
by ending life, and that is often the source of individuals who either contemplate or actually do commit suicide. Because the pain of their life is so great they see no way out. So those are the three hungers that we're always dealing with. And actually number two and number three have to do with number one. We like being comfortable. We really hate difficulty. We don't like being in pain. We are doing everything. The drug industry is one of the you know, biggest producers in the world. And why is this? Because they've got all these little magic pills for us that make us feel good, make us feel less worse, you know, at least. Maybe they help you go up when you're feeling low or maybe they make you come down when you're too high or you know, whatever it is. Think about even 200 years ago, people just suffered. They didn't even have aspirin, you know. They got old and they died pretty young because they didn't have anything, they they didn't have the opportunity to go through multiple different kinds of chemical radiation treatments to try and stop something that was happening. So it's both a curse and a blessing because we get a longer life, uh, but sometimes, as in the case of a dear friend of mine, the cure is almost worse than the disease. And then it becomes a question of the quality of your life. And humans, it turns out, it's really hard for us to judge things like that. For ourselves even, it's hard to know sometimes. So what is it that we think that we are getting in meditation? Why are we all here? I know you guys come here every Sunday. My group comes every Saturday and on Mondays and sometimes you come in the week too. You're doing it at home. Hopefully you're doing your mindfulness practice all the time. (laughs) Well, there's at least one teacher who I read recently. She said, spirituality is not the way out. It's the way in. This is that part of where rather than going away from our suffering, rather than trying to deny it or get out of it, We actually go into it, we investigate it, we explore it. You really have to face it directly because that's your life that's right in front of you right now. I've said this before, it's as if somebody has, you know, let's say there's a professional baseball player here (laughs) and he throws the ball at 90 miles an hour straight at the plate. Only I realize it's not coming to my bat, it's coming to my head. I have a choice at that moment. I can turn away and pretend it's not coming and just go on with my life. Or I can face it because if I turn away, it's still going to hit me. And then it's going to hurt even more because I'm turned away. If I'm looking at it, I have an opportunity to respond. It's the same thing with suffering. If we turn away from it, if we just deny it, if we pretend it's not there, or we, or we try to think that we're going to figure a way out of it, it is going to catch you off guard. It is going to hit you even harder. So we go in. We don't go around. We don't go away. We go into it. But the real problem for most of us in in this culture is that we have been conditioned from very young to only doing things that have a reward. This is what's called gaining idea. 
And usually when we come to meditation practice in the beginning, we're coming because we want to get something, right? I, I want to get some freedom from my angst. I, I want to be a better person. I want to be calmer. I want to be less stressed. You know, a lot of people come to meditation because it's gotten this big name as being a stress reducer, which it is, but that is not actually what it's about. That's a side benefit. All of these things we're talking about might happen. You might become a kinder person. You might become wiser. But that is not actually what is happening. So the man who said Zazen was good for nothing one day was walking with a brand new student who became a very famous Zen teacher, Uchiyama. And Uchiyama was a very young man at the time. And so he tells this story of walking with Sawaki Koto Roshi. While we were walking, I said, as you know, I'm rather an incompetent person, but I want to continue to practice Zazen with you for 20 or 30 years or until you die. If I do that, would it be possible for a weak person like me to become a little stronger? Sawaki Roshi replied, no. (laughs) Zazen is useless. He had this loud, deep voice, was powerful and resolute. I am not like this because of my practice of zazen, he continued. I was like this before I began to practice. Meditation doesn't change a person. Meditation is useless. You can imagine how this young man felt when he heard that. When I heard these words, I thought to myself, although Sawaki Roshi said it wouldn't be possible still, I'll be able to improve myself. I followed him for 25 years until he passed away. Just after his death, I remembered this question I had asked during our walk, and I asked myself, have I changed after practicing with him for 25 years? And I realized I hadn't really changed at all. And in that moment, it was natural for me to say to myself, a violet blossoms as a violet. A rose blossoms as a rose. There are people like Sawaki Roshi who resemble huge rose blossoms. And then there are other people like me who resemble tiny, pretty violet blossoms. Which is better? It is not a relevant question. I should blossom wholeheartedly just as I am. Our biggest problem is we fall into comparison. On the one hand, we all want to be special. And the only way to be special is for somebody else not to be. (laughs) Okay? (laughs) Well, think about it, you know? What what are you doing when you meet new people? There's always this little jockeying for position of who's more intelligent or who's better looking or whatever it is for you. And uh, it doesn't really matter. Because in some sense, everyone is special because every single person you meet is unique. There is no more special. This, this is, you know, childish, magical thinking. You don't have to be the President of the United States. You do not have to be the Dalai Lama to have a highly moral, useful life. But what you do need to do is figure out which flower you are 
and completely blossom in that flower. If you are a rose, be a rose. If you're a violet, be a little violet, but do it completely. That is what we're doing here. We're trying to figure out where we fit, who we are, what we are, what we are in the nature of of reality, of Buddha's mind. Not just in little conventional thinking, because conventional thinking is all about comparison mind, gaining mind, what am I going to get? So the question is, really, what are you going to lose? Don't you love it when you go on retreat and your mother says to you, have a good time, honey. (laughs) Thanks, mom. (laughs) I mean, it's well meant, but it's like, I don't think you quite get this. (laughs) Because you don't go on retreat to have a good time. That's what you do when you go to the movies. You go to have a good time. You go on retreat because you're going to do hard work. And anybody who says retreat isn't hard work hasn't actually gone to a retreat. It is hard work. It's hard on the body. It's really hard on the body to sit for hours and hours. Even if you're getting up and walking for 45 minutes at a time, when you go to sit down again, you realize that same back pain that you had before is back again. Especially if you do, you know, a week long, a two week, a month. You know, you you give yourself time to rest, but still, it's hard on the body. And then it's really hard on the mind because the mind has to sit still for hours at a time. When the mind is used to being off on its tether, running hither and yon all the time, when you're out in the working world, when you're with your friends, the mind is... (laughs) But when you're in your retreat, you're supposed to be keeping your mind on the present moment. Very hard work. So... At this retreat that I was recently leading, this was the calligraphy that I put up behind the altar. And this calligraphy was uh, sent to me by a teacher who is in Nebraska. His name is Nonin Chawani. And uh, it just came to me out of the blue. I just love things like this. This package arrived. He hadn't told me he was sending it. I actually wrote him back and said, are you sure you have the right person? You know, there, there are a lot of, my, my Dharma name is Shungen. I said, there must be other Shungens. <laughs> He wrote back, no, you're the Shungen I meant. <laughs> because it's so beautiful. And he trained in Japan, even though he's American. Um, but it seemed perfect for the retreat that we were doing, where we were going to be talking about meditation. Because it says, walking, just walk. Sitting, just sit. Above all, don't wobble. <laughs> Both my Chinese and Japanese students came up later and said, it doesn't say don't wobble, it says don't move. So if you know characters, you're laughing because you're saying, what's wrong with her? Uh, But when Katagiri Roshi first said this, because this is a quote from him, he used the word wobble, and my Japanese student came up later, it was so cute, she said, wobble, uh, what is wobble? (laughs) I said, wobble, like this. Oh! (laughs) It wasn't talking about bodily wobbling. You know, we all have to move around and realize that we've got our shoulders up here or down here or we're hunched and we have to adjust. It's this wobbling, okay, this mind wobbling, this thing that's all over the map wobbling. And I thought, how perfect to just have it up there every now and then they can just, oh, 
when walking walk, when sitting sit, above all don't wobble. Because it's also the case that we have work practice, you know, when washing dishes, wash dishes. When using the toilet, use the toilet. In other words, whatever you are doing, whatever is in front of you, do it completely. That is how you become you. By doing everything in front of you completely, you have to bring your whole self to it. So, just before I went into this retreat, I received some really devastating news. This always happens. You know, you get the news at what you would consider the worst possible time and yet actually the best possible time. Um, A very dear friend of mine received a diagnosis of melanoma, stage four, two years ago. She felt fine. It was such a surprise to her. She had a lymph node that got removed and guess what? So over the last two years, she's tried all these various things that they've, you know, these cocktails they come up with for you. Terrible, terrible stuff. I mean, blisters and and rashes all over the body, just awful stuff. And uh, finally, at some point, she was up at UCSF and they were out of suggestions because there were things that she just couldn't do. The cure really was worse than the disease. Fortunately, she met up with a new doctor, and this new doctor said, you know, there's this special trial at the NIH back in Bethesda. And they're going to tell you you're not, you're not a candidate because you're over 65. She was 67. Um, but I think I can get you in because I know the people. So, in fact, my friend did get the uh, opportunity to go back. And it meant spending a month, like, in a bubble room, because they had to remove all her white cells, grow them, grow, grow new healthy ones, and then completely inject her back with 100,000 new white blood cells. And during that time, of course, your immune system is completely wide open. So you have to live in this little tiny room for a whole month. And what she said when she got back, she said, I feel like I've been in a war. She said, and I don't, I'm not speaking metaphorically. I feel like I have lived through a war. But we all, you know, when we had talked about it at the very beginning, and she had asked me, should I go through with all of this stuff? And I said, you know what, it's really up to you. It is your decision and no one else's. But I would say that because you have your two daughters who are still relatively young, you might want to think about doing something so that later on when you're dead, they don't say, but if only mom had done that. Do something enough that they can say, you know, mom gave it her her best effort and, and this is the way it is. And she thought that made sense and that is why she went ahead and did these other things and that is why she went to NIH. So our retreat began on Friday and that morning the message came from her that she had just received, she had gone back to NIH again to have another scan and it's gone to her brain. It's metastasized to her brain. So first of all, she's now not in the NIH trial anymore. That puts you out of the the deal. But second of all, they basically said you now have three months to live. 
You know, so of course I burst into tears as I'm reading this, I'm reading an email. And I'm, I'm just saying, no, 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 no. This is not fair. While the other, the Zen teacher part of me is like, fair? Who said anything about fair? You know it's not fair. None of it is fair. Suffering is not fair. You're acting like a kindergartner. I'm sorry, that's not fair. But it is what, it is how we feel. When someone we love, this happens to, it doesn't feel right, but it's not. It's suffering for everyone, including the person who's ill. So, after the retreat, I, I, had, I had taken a picture of the altar because every week, ever since her first diagnosis, I have uh, sent her an email. Uh, you know, there's that Tuesdays with Maury thing. Well, it's Tuesdays with Misha. And I send her a photo with something written. And I had taken a picture of the altar at the retreat, which included this. And in the letter to me, she had said something about, well, now that I'm starting life part two... And I wrote her, I said, before you get to part two, may I comment on part one? I said, the reason I wanted to send you this photo was because of the calligraphy. And I want you to know, as astonishing as it is, in the entire two years, you have not wobbled. She wrote back, she said, well, I think I have wobbled. You know, I've cried. And I, no, no, you don't understand. <laughs> In that two years, you have been completely you. Yes, you've cried. Yes, you've been frustrated. Yes, you've been disappointed, but you never gave up on you. That is what that means. That is what we're doing here. So as I told her in my talk there, after knowing this, I added a line. When walking, just walk. When sitting, just sit. When dying, just die. And above all, don't wobble. And as I told her, between now and your death, you're going to wobble. And it'll be perfectly understandable if you wobble. There's going to be a time when you're going to be saying, I don't want to die. And that's normal. But I want you to understand how astonishing and amazing you have been to this point and that it's also okay not to be. The most important thing is to be who you are completely. So many, many years ago, my grandfather, Suzuki Roshi, you know, he, he was asked, I'm sure, a lot of times, why do you sit meditation? And always my favorite response of his, and I probably have shared this before, but it's so great, he said, I sit so that someday, in the case of an emergency, I just might do the right thing. <laughs> now, I've always been very impressed by this answer, partly because here was a man who was already a really highly acknowledged Zen master, and so humble, I might do the right thing, not I'm going to do the right thing, right? <coughs> And someday, in the case of an emergency, but really and truly, when is the emergency? The emergency is right now. The emergency is I'm not feeling well, or my son is in trouble, or my cat is dying, or, you know, 
I'm getting a sinus infection because the barometric pressure is dropping. The emergency is right now. It's always the emergency. The question is, are you going to do the right thing right now in the emergency? And what is the right thing? It's what's in front of us. Dealing with what's in front of us to the best of our ability. That's where the kindness comes in. We're going to fall short. It's okay. We do our best in this moment to respond rather than react. That's what he's talking about. But the more I began thinking about this, especially during this last retreat, I thought, something is wrong with this translation. I bet he didn't actually say this. And here's why. First of all, there's way too many eyes in the sentence. I sit. So in the case of an emergency, I might do the right thing. He wouldn't have said I. Not that way. And the problem is because there's one of two explanations. Either he said it in Japanese and someone translated it into our incredibly dualistic English language because in English it's impossible not to have the I. Think about when you're writing a letter to someone or an email. I blah, 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 I blah, blah. I comes up all the time because you have to refer to this one here and then you have to refer to that thing there because it's a dualistic language. In Japanese... The closest you can come is watakushi uh, wa this one here. You never say I. There is no I. This one here. It's a much softer way, right? But it's also a less dualistic language. So either it was translated into English and therefore all these eyes appeared, or the other possibility is, you know, Suzuki Roshi did speak English, but it wasn't perfect English. I mean, he had to learn it after he came here as a 45-year-old man. Um, So I would imagine that it probably sounded more like this. Sitting zazen so that when an emergency crisis meeting occurs, small self instinctively steps aside, allowing pure dharma of big mind to pour through. That is what is actually happening. It is not about you or me. There's no I in this. The times of your life that you have truly responded, your I, your conventional I, just dropped away. The way Dogen used to, body and mind, drop away. And then something very pure and unexpected can come through. And that my friends, is the Dharma. <laughs> That's Buddha mind coming right through you. you are, you're a channel, you're a vessel. The problem is we're always so stopped up with our own little eye cork that the Dharma can't pour out of us. You know? So what really Suzuki Roshi was saying, you know, when the emergency arises, the pop of the cork goes and the Dharma pours out. And we know the difference when it happens. We do. It feels right. So, we are not getting wiser or more compassionate. We're not becoming better human beings. We're not getting something. We are letting go of something. We're letting go of this thing I call I. The cork 
goes out. And then something comes through us. And this is why often, uh, you know, there's a saying that you're not doing meditation, meditation is doing you. That's actually more accurate when you think about it. So I said that this bowl contained the greatest teaching of my life. It's the last story I want to share with you. Uh, This bowl is Korean, Korean tea bowl, and it is 300 years old. And up until 20 years ago, it was absolutely perfect. 20 years ago, I did this. And for all those of you in front, you can see that it's chipped very slightly and it's been repaired very slightly, but it is no longer a perfect tea bowl. It was one afternoon, I was Peg's senior uh, tea student, and it sometimes happened that the other tea students couldn't come, and then Peg and I would just be there alone because I was the one who came pretty much every single Thursday. It was a rare thing when I missed. So I know it was a Thursday afternoon, and it seems to me that it must have been about this time of year because of the light that used to come through her western window through the bamboo that created these beautiful uh, shadows on her tatami mat. By the time this happened, Peg would have been uh, probably 88, 89 years old. And therefore she had been practicing for over 40 years, both uh, meditation and tea practice, which is a form of meditation. By this time, uh, the reason I know she had to be that old is that she was now sitting in her chair all the time. She couldn't get down on the floor anymore. And we had had the tea ceremony. I had served her a bowl of tea. I had taken all the things out to the kitchen. And she had used this bowl to hold the sweets that day, which was often what she did use the bowl for, because as you can see, it's quite shallow. And to make a good cup of tea and whisk really strong, you have to be very talented in a bowl this shallow, because otherwise, you know, the tea goes flying out. So she had used this bowl for the yokan. And the last thing in the tea ceremony uh, is that you take the sweets and you put it to one side, and then you do your little bow, and then you close the door, and then you take them out to the the pantry. So, Peg in those days, uh, she lived in this little uh, house, one of those railroad houses, long and narrow, uh, near Stanford University on Bowdoin. And basically you could see from the front door to the back door in this house because it would go through the dining room, the kitchen, and the back bedroom. Uh, And the living room, when you walked in, it was just one big room, and the main part of it was to your left. So... Anyway, I had gone out to the kitchen and I had placed this bowl in the sink on the far left side. It was one of those big double steel uh, sinks with no divider. Now, in those days, um, Peg would heat up the water on her stove and then pour it into the brazier, which is the part of the tea ceremony, the the big metal thing that you take a ladle and you get the water out of it. So she would boil the water on her stove first and then we would empty it into the brazier in the living room. But she believed that the water that had boiled in the iron brazier had health qualities. So she wanted us always to pour the water back into the teapot so that she could use it later for something else. 
She was a very thrifty person. She was a kindergarten teacher, and so she saved everything, including her water. So, the Korean tea bowl is in the sink. Now it's time to clean everything up. And so you lift the top part of the brazier with these rings. And you, they go through little holders on either side of the brazier. And you take it out. And the great thing about it is that because of the rings, you can actually flip them so that the whole metal brazier turns upside down. And then it's easy to pour the water into her teapot. So I had gotten her teapot from the stove and put it in the right-hand corner of the, uh, the sink. But when I put the metal brazier by the edge of the sink in preparation for this, there's, there's a round lid to it that's about three and a half inches wide. I took the lid off and I put it at the corner of the sink. And then I don't know exactly how it happened to this day, but somehow my arm, when I went to get the brazier to flip it over, my arm must have knocked against the little lid and it fell into the sink. And it was like one of those accidents that you see in slow motion, you know? It went round and round and round over to the other end where it just very gently went, think, and two little pieces went. And I was sitting there watching the whole thing going, This is her most valuable tea possession, this 300 perfect year old bowl. And I have just through carelessness broken it. Ah! Suffering. I cannot even begin to tell you what came up in that moment. First of all, there was no one else there but me. There was no one else to blame it on. I couldn't say someone had knocked my arm. I couldn't blame someone else for putting that lid there. It was just me. Then I'm thinking of this wonderful person who I love. I mean, this is a very... I was closer to Peg than any of my grandparents. She wasn't really a grandparent. She was my friend in a way that I never thought you could be with someone who was 45 years older than you. And I've got to go in and tell her I've just broken her most valuable tea possession? What? But then there's this other piece that you need to understand, which I didn't understand actually until just recently. When I was little, when I was a young girl, and I would break things, you know, like any child does accidentally, especially if you have a mother who likes to collect tchotchkes, and they are everywhere, it is not a child-friendly home in that sense, white upholstery mahogany furniture, beautiful statuary from Spain. You're likely to break something. The response was always, you know, great anger, punishment, the silent treatment for days, whatever it took to make you feel this big. That was the baggage I was carrying around was that when you do something like this, that is the response you're going to get. And I almost couldn't bear it, that that this person I love so much, to go in and have her be really angry or really disappointed or to tell me to leave and never come back or whatever it was she was going to do, I was carrying all of that in with me. It's like a Santa Claus bag, you know? 
And I finally gathered up my courage, what little I had left, and walked into the room. And I, I just said, Peg, I've just... I can hardly say it. <laughs> I have just done something really terrible. And I'm so sorry. And I think I can fix it, but it'll never be the same. And I handed her the bowl. And she takes it. And there's this little edge that's not there. And she's looking at it. And the whole time I'm standing there, I am dying a thousand deaths. (laughs) Wishing I could just go into the ground and disappear forever. And because she's looking at it so intently, you know, <laughs> like by looking at it, she's going to make it whole again, which frankly I could believe was a power she had. But she's looking at it, and finally she looks up at me. She looks me in the eyes and she says, These things happen. This was not the response I was expecting. I used to say that it was because Peg chose me over the bull. And I think that's partly true. She chose her love and friendship to be more important to her than this fabulous bowl that she'd had all these years. But during the sashin, the retreat, and after hearing about my friend, I went to a whole new place with this. Peg did not choose anything. But what she showed me was 45 years of meditation practice. Because in that moment of looking at the bowl, conventional peg dropped away. The cork came out of the peg bottle. Because those words could not have come from any place else than the Dharma. Because first of all, they are true. These things happen. Cancer happens. Car crashes happen. Our beloved dog is going to die. We are going to die. And so much is going to happen between now and then. We are going to suffer. We are not here because we can end suffering. We are here to uncork that bottle. To let the conventional being drop away and become this vessel of the pure Dharma. To allow it to flow out of us. Zazen is good for nothing, capital N, referring to emptiness. The emptiness refers to the fact that there is no permanent anything. 
There is no you that you can point to that always exists exactly that way. And what good news is that? You can come to every meeting with yourself and someone else and you are new and you are reborn in this moment. You are not even the same person who woke up this morning. Your food has changed you. Your drive has changed you. Your sitting has already changed you. When you go home, your family's all going to think it's the same you who went this morning, but it's not. And they are not the same either. And when we finally understand that, life becomes very joyous and very precious, which is what my dear friend with the melanoma has learned so quickly. She is not a meditation practitioner. She was my next-door neighbor for years. But when this diagnosis came, she reached out to me. And because I have done some hospice work, I told her, I said, I will be there with you. I will walk through this whole thing with you and I will be there with you at the end. And in that two years, the most amazing meditation student of all time has stepped forward. She only does five to ten minutes of meditation a day, but her whole day is meditation. Her whole day is about what's in front of her and finding that precious beauty, even the difficult things that are right in front of her. She is, in such a short time, learned to be completely who she is, without wobbling. So what I wish for all of you, do that. Do that practice every day. Do the practice of coming back to this incredible present moment. Everything you need is here. Meditation is here. Joy is here. Suffering is here. It is all here. Don't separate it out. Just meet it. That is when you become completely you. And that is where you see the truth of these things happen. Thank you so much.